Well, good morning, everybody. Are you awake? You seem, you seem a little uh, subdued. Is that the word I'm looking for? Uh, so to encourage you this morning, you know, the last probably, I don't know, eight or nine days have been pretty overwhelming for me personally. Like there's just been a lot that has gone on in my family and other things we've had to deal with over the past week. And uh, so sometimes because of those things, I can tend to stumble into Sunday morning and uh, not have a lot of energy or excitement or just be kind of tired and worn out. Um, but then I was reminded as we sang particularly that last song together that we come together for a very powerful reason. And that is that our God is greater than anything around us, anything that could stand against us, anything that would try to keep us from him. Our God overcomes all of those things. And so no matter what has happened in our lives or how tired we are or worn out, we can have joy every time we come together because our God is bigger than. Amen? Amen? Some of you are still staring at me blankly, but <laughs> just pretend that you agree with what I'm saying. Our scripture reading this morning comes from 2 Samuel chapter 7, starting in verse 8. If you have your Bibles, you're welcome to turn over there. I'll be reading it here for you this morning. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 8 through 16. Hold on one second. Now then, tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture, from tending the flock, and appointed you ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have cut off all your enemies from before you. Now I will make your name great like the names of the greatest men on earth. And I will provide a place for my people Israel, and will plant them so that they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people will not oppress them any more as they did at the beginning and have done ever since the time I appointed leaders over my people Israel. I will also give you rest from all of your enemies. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with the rod wielded by men, with floggings inflicted by human hands, but my love will never be taken away from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. I am not always so good at keeping my promises to my children. Now, I don't want you to misunderstand me. It's not like I lie to them all the time. I just lie to them sometimes. (laughs) And it's not like I simply say things to them to get them to move on to something else either because I would never do that. (laughs) But sometimes I may say that we will do something or that they will get something and then either A, I become unmotivated to do said thing once the appointed time has come or B, I forgot that I said I would do this thing when the appointed time has come. The problem is Jed doesn't forget anything, (laughs) ever. He will say to us, hey, remember when I was three and blah, blah, blah? And I'm like, no, I don't. This is a problem, and and it's something which I need to pay more attention to along with uh, working on my follow-through. But sometimes, you know, as a parent, you, you have a situation that comes up, and you've promised to do something good for your children if they behave. Anyone ever rewarded your children for if they behave correctly, right? Okay. But in between the time when you can deliver what it is you've promised, so you promise, they behave, you haven't delivered yet, and they misbehave. My children never do this. I've heard about other children doing this. Um, 
And then you have, you have a choice to make, right? Well, I promised you this thing, and you showed that you deserve that thing, but now you're showing that you don't deserve this thing. So if I give this thing to you now, am I sending the wrong message, even though I told you I would give it to you because you did something right? See? See what I'm saying, people? It's hard to know what to do sometimes. And I have no problem admitting that there have been times when I have very strongly considered not giving my children what I have told them I would give them because their bad behavior made it less rewarding for me to give it to them. The truth is that in those moments where they have done something that has frustrated me or made me angry, I just don't want to give them this reward anymore. The story we are reading about God and his people is truly a remarkable one, and we have seen God through, go through these enormous ups and downs with his people, where he rewards them so much for the times that they love him and stick with him, but then inevitably they turn away from him. And we saw it in the life of David, who had tremendous ups, and then came crashing down to the ground when he committed adultery, murdered the woman's husband, tried to cover up the baby, and so on and so forth. And with Solomon, we see his son Solomon come to the throne, and Solomon has more than any king has ever had, more resources. Leaders from all over the world are coming to see him, and yet he too turns away from God. He has more than 700 wives and 300 concubines, and he begins to worship their gods. And again, he is pulled away from who God is. But here's the remarkable thing that I want you to focus on this morning, and that is this. God made a promise to David. What was David's promise? That his kingdom, his throne, would be established how long? Forever. That his throne, his line, would be established forever. And this is something that we see which is truly remarkable, and you're going to see it again this morning. God does not break his promise. When God promises he will do something, he does not break that promise. Even when his people, he gave it to them when they were loving him, and even when they worship other gods, God does not break his promise. Even when they, they insult God by worshiping poles made from trees and animals made from gold, God does not break his promise. And I want you to know something. That is really good news for us. That God does not break his promise. God is a maker of promises and a keeper of promises. And when God says he is going to do something, that promise lasts forever. Thank God that he keeps his promises to us. So, uh, we did ask the kids some questions now, which I do need your input on this morning. Uh, some very, very important questions. Number one, chocolate or vanilla? Raise your hand if you are a chocolate person. Yes, raise your hand if you are a vanilla person. Not, not terribly surprising, but we're pretty close to half on half. Um, A's or giants? A's or giants? Giants, giants, raise your hand. Yeah, uh, A's. Zula, raise your hand. Zula, this is your opportunity. A's, A's fans. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm used, I'm used to that too. Uh, A's or Giants, Zula. Um, Niners or Raiders? Anyone have an opinion about that? Niners, raise your hand. Yeah, Raiders, raise your hand. <laughs> We, no sport at all, like, <laughs> would you ask me a question about classic literature, please, because <laughs> we, have, uh, we have opinions about a lot of different things, don't you? Uh, and let me just give you an example about how we have opinions about a lot of different things. Ask someone, tell someone that you're going somewhere, and then ask them how you should get there. 
right? And then ask someone, and then get someone else involved in the conversation too. It's more fun if you do that because then they can discuss how the way that the other person is like wrong and oh no, you need to do this or you need to do that. We have opinions about a lot of different things and some of these opinions are based on our experience. Some of them are based on things that we've read or seen or done. Some of our opinions are based on how we feel that day. Um, my son Zeke, as many of you know, is a Warriors fan. He, he is a die-hard Warriors fan. He loves the Warriors with every fiber of his being. Um, my son Jed, however, is a Cavs fan. Do you know why my son Jed is a Cavs fan? Yes, you do. <clears throat> when I was a kid, though, uh, I, was a, I was a die-hard Lakers fan. Um, I grew up in Fresno, and so <clears throat> at the time, there wasn't really much to say about the Warriors, um, but there was a lot to say about the Lakers. So this was the Showtime Lakers with Maddie Johnson and Kareem and James Worthy and AC Green and all these, all these guys. It was, it, was a, it was a really cool time. And so every morning I would get up to eat my breakfast and I would get the sports page out of the Fresno Bee. I would set it down in front of me and I would open up to the article that talked about the Lakers game. And at the top of the article, every single time, it said these two words, Inglewood, California. I longed to go to Inglewood, California, <laughs> because that was the place the Lakers were, at the Great Western Forum, and I just knew that Inglewood was a magical place, uh, where basketball was celebrated all the time. But because I was such a huge Lakers fan, there was one team that I could not abide by. They were the Boston Celtics. Yes. Um, I hated the Boston Celtics. Hated the Boston Celtics. Um, I refused to wear green for several years because I did not want there to be any confusion as to which team I supported. And rivalries like that may not matter as much uh, today, and yet we find ourselves living in a time where our differences of opinion drive us further and further apart. You can blame all sorts of things for the reason why this is, whether you want to talk about social media or the news or any of these sorts of things. I, I, think, I think the tides have calmed a little bit, although we are still acutely aware of the ways in which we differ from people around us. And if you dare to express an opinion on any sort of social or political matter, you must be prepared for some sort of vitriolic response from both friends and neighbors. I prefer to uh, you know, start these conversations with just a simple look of disgust. I let that talk first before I rip them apart and talk about their mothers. Um, there is so much that drives us apart. I'm kind of struck by this, that there are so many things we could choose, so many different opinions, so many different things that drive us apart. And the question that I sort of have is, what is it that unites us? Now, as a country, there is a time when tragedy would have united us. And some of you have experienced that in powerful ways, but now... Today, tragedy has become yet another platform we use to espouse our opinions about something. But historically, we have seen the most effective tool in uniting us as a people is when we encounter something that overwhelms our own sense of self and self-importance. Something that puts everything into perspective. Uh, primarily, the thing that comes to my mind when I think about this is 9-11 and how the entire country stopped and stared in disbelief at what they were seeing. They, they could not, you could not hardly fathom the images and they just were going on and on and on. And that was a moment in time where no matter what you thought or felt or how you stood in a different social standing or whether you liked a certain kind of something or other, all of those things sort of faded to the background. 
to where we all stood there in that moment wondering what was going on. We tend, you can judge whether this is a fair statement or not, we tend to put our own desires, preferences, or opinions first unless there is something which calls us outside of ourselves. Why are we here today? What is it that brought you here this morning uh, to come through these doors and to spend this time with a bunch of people that maybe you like or maybe you don't? I'm not going to speak for you. And I want you to think about that question for a minute. Because there's a, there's a question that we need to consider as we look back at the story this morning. And it's an important question, and it's one that we really need to let soak in here. And the question is this. What is it that makes the people of Israel the people of Israel? What is it that defines them? What is it that makes them who they are? Is it the land that they live on? Is it who they are related to? Because... Theoretically, they're all interrelated. The thing that makes them who they are is not where they live or who they're related to. The thing that makes them who they are is that they are the people of God. Yes? God called them out to make them into a nation and told them what they would become. God took them from slavery and led them to a land that would become theirs and this would be where they live. God was the one who created this thing. And you need to understand this. They would not be without Him. They would not be without God. God is their beginning and their end and everything in the middle. So what happens to a group of people who are defined by their relationship with God when they start defining themselves by something else? If you remember where we've been the last few weeks, we spent a few weeks uh, talking about the life of David. Uh, David was their, their first good king who followed and, and loved God and, and he did have this massive moral failing. But God restored him and brought him back and to the end of his life, David had a relationship with God. He praised God. He loved God. And he gathered as much, as many materials as he could so that the people of Israel could build a temple for God, a home for God after David was gone. And so David's son Solomon became the next king. And Solomon, uh, his wealth just grew exponentially. And he took all of these things that, that um, David had and he built this massive, beautiful home for God, but then things kept coming in. And if you remember, right, silver was like what? Like rocks on the ground. Everything was made of gold. And Solomon was doing these huge, was, was carrying out, I should say, these huge building projects all over the place. He was building a wall. He was restoring cities. He was doing all of these things. And he was using this immense wealth and power and influence to build up the nation of Israel. But as I said this morning, Solomon turned away from God. He had 700 wives, 300 concubines. Can you imagine if he spent, if he spent one day with a wife at a time, she would see him one day and then not see him again for two years. That's a lot of wives. And they worship these foreign gods, and so Solomon starts to worship these foreign gods, and he turns away from God. And what happens when the nation of Israel turns away from God? What happens? 
bad things, and specifically, God reacts, right? He has promised, as we looked at the promise to David this morning, that he would keep his promise to David, that he would stay true to his people. He always asked them to stick with him, but he promised he would stay true. And Solomon did not keep up his end of the bargain. So our first passage this morning, uh, we're actually going to have scripture references up. I know some of you have been asking for that comes from 1 Kings chapter 11, verses 27 through 39. And it's talking about a man named Jeroboam. Here is the account of how he rebelled against the king. Solomon had built the terraces and had filled in the gap in the wall of the city of David, his father. Now Jeroboam was a man of standing, and when Solomon saw how well the young man did his work, he put him in charge of the whole labor force of the tribes of Joseph. About that time... Jeroboam was going out of Jerusalem, and Ahijah, the prophet of Shiloh, met him on the way, wearing a new cloak. The two of them were alone out in the country, and Ahijah took hold of the new cloak he was wearing and tore it into twelve pieces. Then he said to Jeroboam, Take ten pieces for yourself, for this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. See, I am going to tear the kingdom out of Solomon's hand and give you ten tribes. But for the sake of my servant David and the city of Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, he will have one tribe. I will do this because they have forsaken me and worshipped Ashereth, the goddess of the Sidonians, Chemosh, the god of the Moabites, and Molech, the god of the Ammonites, and have not walked in obedience to me, nor done what is right in my eyes, nor kept my decrees and laws as David, Solomon's father, did. But... I will not take the whole kingdom out of Solomon's hand. I have made him ruler all the days of his life for the sake of David, my servant, whom I chose and who obeyed my commands and decrees. I will take the kingdom from his son's hands and give you ten tribes. I will give one tribe to his son so that David, my servant, may always have a lamp before me in Jerusalem, the city where I chose to put my name. However, as... As for you, I will take you and you will rule over all that your heart desires. You will be king over Israel. If you do whatever I command you and walk in obedience to me and do what is right in my eyes by obeying my decrees and commands, as David my servant did, I will be with you. I will build you a dynasty as enduring as the one I built for David and will give Israel to you. I will humble David's descendants because of this, but not forever. Okay, now, guys, this is a pretty major deal. What is, what's happening here in this conversation between these two men, Jeroboam and Ahijah? And, and here's basically what, what he's telling Jeroboam. Look, God is fed up with all of this. What was Solomon's job? To stay true to God. And what did Solomon not do? Stay true to God. And so God had to act. And what did God decide to do? He was going to take from Solomon's son most of the kingdom. Okay? So Jeroboam would have how many tribes? Ten. Okay? And Solomon would be left with how many? Two. His own tribe. And one more. And so God is put in this weird position, right? He has made a promise to Solomon, or to David, I should say. He's made a promise to David, but Solomon has broken his end of the promise. And so God must act because he can't just ignore what's going on, but he refuses to pull himself out of the promise he made to David all the way. I am going to humble them. I'm going to take from them. They are going to have to deal with this. And someday my favor will be restored to them. The only thing that had to happen then was for Jeroboam to do what? To stay true to God. And, and listen to what God says. I don't know that I've ever noticed this before. But what does God promise Jeroboam at the end of that passage? You can have the same thing as David. 
Have you ever noticed that before? You can have the same thing as David if you will stay true to me. Interesting that he offers that to Jeroboam. Now, this whole switch of power didn't happen while Solomon was alive. Um, But once Solomon died, his son, whose name was Rehoboam, was the next in line for the kingship. So remember, God talked to who? Jeroboam and Solomon's son is Rehoboam. Okay, if you have like a study Bible, you have charts in there because this whole thing just gets wonky. So I'm just warning you now, uh, if I don't remember the names, if you don't remember the names, but listen, listen to what happens. Okay, Rehoboam was next in line for the kingship. And because he was the next in line, the nation of Israel decides that they're going to make him king. Rehoboam went to Shechem for all Israel had gone there to make him king. When Jeroboam, son of Nebat, heard this, he was still in Egypt where he had fled from King Solomon, he returned from Egypt. So they sent for Jeroboam, and he and the whole assembly of Israel went to Rehoboam and said to him, Your father put a heavy yoke on us, but now lighten the harsh labor and the heavy yoke he put on us, and we will serve you. Okay, so remember, Solomon has been doing a lot of what? Building projects all over the place. And they don't have slave nations. So who is doing this work? The people are. The people are doing this work. And what have they been doing for the entire time of Solomon's reign? Building. And 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 now that Solomon is gone, how do they feel about all this? Can we just stop now? Like, haven't we done enough? Can we stop doing all this? So the people bring Jeroboam in and he speaks up for them. And he says, all right, look, enough's enough. Everyone's kind of done with this. We're all unhappy. Will you put an end to this? And Rehoboam answered, go away for three days and then come back to me. So everybody left. He's going to take some time to think about it. Then King Rehoboam consulted the elders who had served his father Solomon during his lifetime. How would you advise me to answer these people, he asked. They replied, If today you will be a servant to these people and serve them and give them a favorable answer, they will always be your servants. What, is, what are the elders basically telling him to do? Treat them like people that you love and care for, and they will love and care for you. But Rehoboam rejected the advice the elders gave him and consulted the young men who had grown up with him and were serving him. He asked them, what is your advice? How should we answer these people who say to me, lighten the yoke your father put on us? The young men, the young men who had grew up with him replied, these people have said to you, your father put a heavy yoke on us, but make our yoke lighter. Now tell them, my little finger is thicker than my father's waist. My father laid on you a heavy yoke. I will make it even heavier. My father scourged you with whips. I will scourge you with scorpions. Now, there's a side lesson that we need to learn here. You've probably already recognized it. Young men are stupid. (laughs) It's true. It's true. Young men are stupid. Um, Older men are better. Uh, theoretically, in terms of the level of wisdom they've achieved. But the reason why they've achieved that level of wisdom is because they were once young men. And at one time in their lives, they said, who needs a whip when I can throw scorpions at you? I'm just saying, young men are stupid. Rehoboam is a young man, and so who does he listen to? His friends. Three days later, Jeroboam and all the people returned to Rehoboam as the king had said, come back to me in three days. The king answered the people harshly, rejecting the advice given him by the elders. He followed the advice of the young men and said, my father made your yoke heavy. I will make it even heavier. My father scourged you with whips. I will scourge you with scorpions. I'm not sure how that works. Being scourged with with scorpions, but it sounds extremely unpleasant. Um, So the king did not listen to the people, for this turn of events was from the Lord to fulfill the word the Lord had spoken to Jeroboam, son of Nabat, through Ahijah, the Shilonite. When all Israel saw that the king refused to listen to them, they answered the king. Now this is an important statement I want you to pay attention to. What share do we have in David? What part in Jesse's son? To your tents, Israel, 
Look after your own house, David. Now, it seems like a weird thing to say to sort of speak in some quasi-poetry when you're basically saying, we're done with you. But they're making a really, really important statement. What is the statement they are making? You take care of yourself, and we'll take care of us. But as far as who you are and what you do, we don't care. And the nation of Israel, which has been up to this point a united place, is now divided. The Israelites went home, and those who were living in the towns of Judah, Rehoboam ruled over them. So now we have two kings over this whole territory. In the north, you have Jeroboam, and in the south, you have foolish Rehoboam. And this is uh, what the kingdom looks like when it was divided. If you can bring the next picture up. I know it's not um, super uh, sharp there, but the green that you see in the north, that is considered from that point forward the nation of Israel. It is larger uh, than the southern piece, which is the nation of Judah. Um, Jerusalem does lie in the southern part, so the palace, the temple, all of that stays under the control of the nation of Judah. Um, so this is what the kingdom looks like for the rest of the history of the nation of Israel. Um, they were divided, and the bulk of the people went with Jeroboam for the northern kingdom. The two tribes stayed uh, down south with Rehoboam and Judah. And so Rehoboam, who was going to be the king of all of this, and, and imagine for a second, he's supposed to be the king of this whole place. He tries to assert himself as the king of the whole place. And how do the people react? Um, no. And so they leave and go back north. And what does Rehoboam want to do? What would you do? He wants to fight. So he gets together as many people as he can, he gets this army together because he wants to go and fight the northern country. And God, who brought the division, right? He's taking away from Solomon and giving to Jeroboam. God, who brought this, actually intercedes into this situation and told Rehoboam, no, you are not going to go attack your family. You are divided, but this is not happening. And he sends them back home. It's almost like he's the parent whose children are fighting. And these few verses. No, no, go to your corners, take a break. And they all go back home. So, Rehoboam, he's kind of a fool. He's not really following God. He's following the ways of uh, his father, and, but Jeroboam has this fresh start. He's got ten tribes. He's got all of this area. And again, what is the one thing he needs to do? Follow God. And if he follows God, he can have what? Everything. He can have everything. His throne can be established forever. Church, there's a reason why we still talk about the throne of David and why we do not talk about the throne of Jeroboam. Because even though God offered him everything, listen to what his almost immediate response is to this situation. God has given him all of this. Remember that. Jeroboam thought to himself, the kingdom will now likely revert to the house of David. If these people go up to offer sacrifices at the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem, they will again give their allegiance to the Lord. Rehoboam, king of Judah. They will kill me and return to Rehoboam. After seeking advice, the king made two golden calves. He said to the people, It is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Here are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. One he set up in Bethel and the other in Dan, and this thing became a sin. The people came to worship the one at Bethel and went as far as Dan to worship the other. Jeroboam built shrines on high places and appointed priests from all sorts of people, even though they were not Levites. He instituted a festival on the 15th day of the 8th month, like the festival held in Judah, and offered sacrifices on the altar. 
This he did in Bethel, sacrificing to the calves he had made. And at Bethel he also installed priests at the high places he had made. On the fifteenth day, or yeah, fifteenth day of the eighth month, a month of his own choosing, he offered sacrifices on the altar he had built at Bethel. So he instituted the festivals for the Israelites and went up to the altar to make offerings. Okay. We need to take a moment to fully appreciate what it is that Jeroboam has done. He looks at the situation and he says, what? Judah has the temple. And if people want to continue to worship God, where are they going to have to go? To Jerusalem. And if they go to Jerusalem, Rehoboam's in charge of Jerusalem. And if they make sacrifices, then they're going to have to give themselves over, dedicate themselves to Rehoboam. And if they do that, they will kill me. So what does Jeroboam decide to do? He makes a copycat religion. He makes a copy, well, copy cow religion. <laughs> he makes his own places. He makes these two golden calves. He puts them in two separate places. He mimics some of the things they've already been doing, the festivals they've already been doing, and then he creates his own festivals. He calls his own priests out, and they are all leading the people in worship to these golden calves who did what? Led them out of Egypt. So not only is it a fake religion, but he is now giving credit to these golden calves that he had made, the very deliverance of the people of Israel. Because what? It sounds enough like it's true. Hey, it even feels like it's the same thing. We're just going to these calves instead of going to the temple. Works for me. And the whole nation of Israel does it. God did not appreciate this. And Jeroboam led the people away from God into these gods he had made. And so Jeroboam's son became sick and uh, Jeroboam sent his wife in disguise to meet with a prophet to find out if his son was going to make it or not. And so she sneaks in as if the prophet of God doesn't know. Like God speaks to the prophet before she gets there and is like, dude, that fake mustache and stuff, just like ignore it. This is Jeroboam's wife. So she comes in and this is what Jeroboam is told or Jeroboam's wife is told. Go tell Jeroboam that this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. I raise you up from among the people and appointed you ruler over my people Israel. I tore the kingdom away from the house of David and gave it to you, but you have not been like my servant David, who kept my commands and followed me with all his heart, doing only what was right in my eyes. You have done more evil than all who lived before you. That's a pretty strong statement. You have made for yourself other gods, idols made of metal, you have aroused my anger and turned your back on me. Because of this, I am going to bring disaster on the house of Jeroboam. I will cut off from Jeroboam every last male in Israel, slave or free. I will burn up the house of Jeroboam as one burns dung until it's all gone. Dogs will eat those belonging to Jeroboam who die in the city, and the birds will feed on those who die in the country. The Lord has spoken. The Lord will raise up for himself a king over Israel who will cut off the family of Jeroboam. Even now this is beginning to happen. And the Lord will strike Israel so that it will be like a reed swaying in the water. He will uproot Israel from the good land that he gave to their ancestors and scatter them beyond the Euphrates River because they aroused the Lord's anger by making Asherah poles. And he will give Israel up because of the sins Jeroboam has committed and has caused Israel to commit. So God is a little peeved over what's gone on. And what does he decide he is going to do? This is big. He's going to punish Jeroboam pretty severely. They're not even going to have graves for these people because the animals will have taken care of that. But secondly, what is God going to do to Israel because of Jeroboam? He is going to give them up. 
they will be scattered. Okay? All because of what? Jeroboam started worshipping other gods and led the people of Israel away from the one God. And the people of Israel, who should have known better, began worshipping cows that brought them out of Egypt. And God is done with that. Who has he made a promise to? David. Who is he going to keep his promise to? David. But this whole business has to stop. So back to Rehoboam, who is now in the south, doing, you know, I'm sure lovely things. The southern kingdom was called Judah. Judah did evil in the eyes of the Lord. By the sins they committed, they stirred up his jealous anger more than those who were before them had done. They also set up for themselves high places, sacred stones, and asherah poles on every high hill and under every spreading tree. There were even male shrine prostitutes in the land. The people engaged in all the detestable practices of the nations the Lord had driven out before the Israelites. In the fifth year of King Rehoboam, Shishak, king of Egypt, attacked Jerusalem. He carried off the treasures of the temple of the Lord and the treasures of the royal palace. He took everything including all the gold shields Solomon had made. So Rehoboam did just as bad. And because he did just as bad, what happens in Judah? The house of God is ransacked. Let me ask you this question. How is it that the house of God can be ransacked? Because God is not there. Why is he not there? Because people in the south who had the temple and the presence of God started worshipping everything else just like the people in the north did. So God is now looking down at the nation of Israel and the nation of Judah. These people he has called out to be his own. And what does he have left to hold on to? What does he have left to hold on to? After 22 years as king of Israel, Jeroboam died. Rehoboam passed away. Only a few kings during this whole period were considered good. Uh, king Asa uh, of Judah did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. He, uh, ridded, the, he rid the kingdom of idolatry. Uh, he went so far as even to remove his grandmother from the position of queen mother because she was a pagan and didn't worship God. Um, and he didn't even stop there. He understood that only the Lord God was worthy of worship and he cleansed the entire land of Judah of its idols. But on the other side of this, you had uh, Jeroboam's son, uh, Nadab, who did evil in the eyes of the Lord, following in the ways of his father. A man named Basha plotted against Nadab and killed the king and Jeroboam's whole family carrying out the prophecy that God had given. Uh, Zimri, who also followed the evil ways of Jeroboam, killed his predecessor, King Elah, to get to the throne. But Zimri had failed to calculate his popular support, so he killed the other king and was in power for an entire week um, before burning himself to death in the palace and leaving uh, the ashes to Omri, who the people wanted to be king. Uh, Omri made the city of Samaria the capital of the northern kingdom, and Samaria... Uh, uh, came to signify the entire territory of the northern tribes, but eventually the entire northern area is wiped out and taken into captivity and everything is just destroyed. Um, oh, one thing I forgot to mention. Uh, when Omri died, he has a son named Ahab who became king of Israel. And, is, and Ahab had a wife whose name was uh, Jezebel. Maybe you've heard of her. Elvis had something to say about that who was a powerful woman, but the daughter of a pagan foreign king. So, you know, we have been reading this story for all these months. And we have been reading them under one main assumption. And that is this. That the people of God want to be the people of God. And as much as they get pushed and pulled and dragged and all these things happen... In the back of my mind, I see them come back and I see God restore them. And I think to myself, see, 
somewhere deep inside this story, the people really want to be the people of God. But what do we see happen? It's, they don't. No one is making them worship pagan gods. No one is making them abandon God. They could choose God at any moment they want. They could do all of this, and yet they don't. And God, as we're going to see next week, sends prophet after prophet after prophet to speak to them and try to snap them out of these stupid decisions they're making, but they just keep making them. And they just keep ignoring the word of God. But God, to his credit, keeps inviting them back again and again and again and again and again. Why? Because he made a promise. And he said, you are my people, and you will forever be my people. So come back to me. And time and time again, they say no, which makes me think, do they want this at all? Couldn't they choose something different? So what do we learn from this story? Well, we see old themes repeated. We see humanity's unwillingness to stick with God. We see them turning to other idols. We see leaders making decisions which either make them happy or make the people they're trying to serve happy. And as they think, act, and move in this direction, God becomes less and less of an influence over who they are. But God is still there working and moving and making things happen and keeping his promise. That's the big story. That's the overarching theme that we see so far. But beyond these things, we receive another warning. And that is this. It was God who brought them together and called them out from amongst the people and gave them a name and a land. It was God who had turned them into something. And listen to this. When something else becomes more influential than God, there are two things that happen. When the people of God stop seeing themselves as the people of God, first and foremost, they turn on one another. We forget what pulls us together, and we forget what pulls us together, our differences become magnified. And when our differences become magnified, they are like wedges that drive us apart. They are all we see. And church, in one generation, the nation of Israel, united under a king who loved God, became a nation divided and ready to go to war and kill one another over who could sit on the throne. And secondly, when the people of God stop being the people of God, they fall to outside forces every time. Every single time. They put themselves under the influence of other gods or other things, and they fall every single time. Do you know who was thrilled about all of this? Every nation outside of Israel that had been coming for years to pay tribute to them, that had been paying taxes on all these things because God had blessed them and put them in this seat of power. But the people of God abandoned God. They became a nation, a tribe, under a human being, and when they did that, they fell as a people. If they had simply stayed with God, there is nothing that would have stood in their way. But this is what they chose. So, why are we here today? We are here today, and I don't want there to be any confusion about this. We are here today because of the love of God that was shown to us in Jesus Christ. That is the reason we are here today. This is what defines us. We, all of us in this room, are failures. We are sinners in need of a Savior, and we are incapable of saving ourselves. We cannot be good enough for God. And no matter where we are from, what we do, how much money we make, the color of our skin, the language we speak, this is what makes us who we are, that we are saved by the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is who we are. When we forget this, two things happen. Number one, 
we fight with one another. And we fight over anything and everything. Worship styles, what people can and cannot do. I've been in a church where they fought over the color of the auditorium. And when we divide from one another, we stop loving, we stop being in relationship, and we no longer want to be around those people who made that decision or who do that thing. Secondly, we fall to outside influences every time. We forget that we are saved by the blood of Jesus Christ. We may often complain how the world is against us as Christians, which it is against us, but I am convicted by this story that we are more guilty than we would like to admit. We have the all-powerful God on our side, and if we will be his people first and foremost, then who can stand against us? We give the things around us power when we rely on ourselves instead of God. And if we would rely on God, we rob everything of any influence or power it could have over us. We at the Sonoma Church of Christ are defined by one thing. We are loved by God. We are saved by the sacrifice of Jesus that shows us that love. And we believe that the whole world needs to know Jesus as well. And this is what makes us who we are. Not where we meet. Not how we worship. Not what kind of communion bread we pass around. We are saved by Jesus. May we never forget that. Heavenly Father, we are thankful for your son Jesus who defines us and makes us who we are. God, may we not be like the people who have come before us in the story that we are reading who replace you with so many other different things. And God, it's heartbreaking to see these people that could be living an amazing, incredible, empowered life choose to make fake gods when the real God is there waiting for them. God, may we not keep you waiting. May we not elevate ourselves, but may our story be that we are loved by you, that we are sinners in need of a Savior and that a Savior was sent for us. And when people meet us, may the word that is on their lips as they leave be Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. If you need any prayers or encouragement this morning, we invite you to come forward as we stand and sing this song together.